0: Hey, everybody, and welcome back to I Just Want to Talk About the Bible. If this is your first time, then I'm glad that you're here. My name is Christian Keeter, and I live in the southeast of the United States of America with my amazing, beautiful, godly wife, Lacey, and our two wonderful daughters, Felicity and Serenity. The moment that somebody becomes a Christian... The moment that somebody places their faith and trust in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior and are born again, a number of crucially important things happen at that moment. Uh, some examples would be uh, such a person is immediately adopted into the family of God, meaning that God is their father. John 1, 11, I'm sorry, John 1, 12 through 13 says, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So one thing that happens is we're, we're immediately adopted into the family of God. God is our father. We are his sons and daughters. Another thing that happens is that uh, the Holy Spirit comes to indwell us and live within us. Romans 8, 9 says, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if in fact the spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. Another thing that happens, and let's see, so we can see it in Second Corinthians five seventeen. It says, "Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come." And so we become new creations. And so a lot, a lot of indispensably important things happen immediately as soon as we're born again. And it would be a really good use of time for us to study each of those things so that we can better understand who we are in Christ and to understand our identity in Christ. That is a that is a good and important use of our time and so today what we're going to do is we're going to look at one aspect of that one facet of this one thing that happens the moment that we're born again and it's very important for us to understand and i think that a lot of us would agree at least intellectually uh, theoretically with the content of this episode but it's one thing to agree with something theoretically but to, then another thing entirely to have it really grasped in our heart and to really have our mind and our understanding wrapped around it and just really really believe it and that topic is justification it's the topic of justification now there are a lot of big bible sounding words that get thrown around a whole lot that make you feel spiritual when you use them but in all actuality we don't really practically know what they mean because a lot of times we don't use these words in day-to-day conversation so words like um You know, glorify, sanctify, uh, justification, um, you know, things like that. Those are just a couple of examples. And so we use these words and we just kind of don't even really think about what they mean. We just kind of shut our brains off sometimes when these we I guess it's probably just because we've heard these words so many times that we just don't even necessarily think about it. But justification, the idea behind it is a crucially important one. So the passage that we're going to be looking at to study this is going to be Romans 5. Romans 5, verses 1 through 2. And we're going to move through it and pause along the way quite a bit, because this is a very important topic that we really need to to grasp. So Romans 5, 1 uh, and 2, beginning in verse 1, obviously. It says, therefore, and we should stop. We should stop right there. First word, we're going to stop. So, therefore, that's a very interesting word, and that's kind of an example of another one of those words where it's like we hear it so much in the Bible that we don't really even think about it. We just kind of gloss over it, but the word therefore means something, and you've probably heard the little adage that says, when you see therefore, ask, what's it there for? Which probably isn't quite proper English, but you get the point. You you ask, well, what, what is this word? Why is that There. And so whenever you see the word therefore, I want to give you another phrase that you can just kind of think about whenever you see it to help kind of re-engage your mind and re-engage your thinking. You can replace the word therefore with the phrase because of this. Because of this. In fact, the word that's translated as therefore could just also be translated as then, accordingly, consequently, or these things being so. And so you can see the idea of the phrase because of this is definitely in those definitions as well. So let's just, let's apply this and see what I'm talking about here. So in Romans five, the verse that we've been looking at, it starts off the first half of the verse says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, then it goes on, but now listen to it because of this, since we have been justified by faith, then dot, 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 it, it goes on. But do you see, it just kind of makes you ask certain questions now. And there's nothing wrong with the word therefore. The word therefore is a wonderful word. What's wrong is this how we kind of gloss over it and how we just don't think about it, really. And so this is just uh, an attempt to help us to re-engage our minds. So when when it says therefore, we need to say, well, what is this even referring to? Because of this, because of what? Uh, consequently, well, consequently, like with regard to to what? Like what what is this pointing back to? And so obviously this is Romans chapter 5 the what we call the book of romans um would probably be more accurately referred to as the letter to the romans because that's what it was it was a letter from paul to the church at rome and so we need to keep this in mind we're we're picking up right in the middle of a letter and in fact this might be a good time just to say any time that you're studying what we call the epistles or the letters you know the letters of paul um obviously peter wrote two of them john has some letters uh, jude whenever you're studying Um, and James is, is another example. You know, the letters, the letters of the New Testament. When you're studying those, it's not a bad idea to sit down and then read it all the way through, if you're able, and then go back and look at specific portions because it'll give you an idea of the entire flow of the letter, the flow of the logic within the letter, the points that are being made, and it'll help prevent us from taking verses out of context and misapplying them and misunderstanding them. However, we're not going to read Romans from start to finish right now. Uh, in fact, Romans is the longest of Paul's letters. Uh, but, we're, but we do want to give it the respect that it's due. So having said that, Paul says, therefore, but because of this. So what is this a reference to? Well, in the chapters leading up to this, he's been talking about how no one is justified by works of the law. So let me give you an example here. In Romans chapter 3, verses 19 through 20, it says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. That's the end of the verse there, or the passage. And and there was our word, I don't know if you caught that, but it says, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. So that's the word we're going to be focusing on. But what's Paul's point here? The point is just that none of us can live up to the holy righteous standard of the law. That's not an issue with the law, because the law is righteous and good and holy. However, we fall short of the law. As it says in a few verses down, uh, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's Romans 3.23. But the scriptures are clear that no human being is going to be justified by works of the law. The only person in the history of the world who lived up to the righteous standard of the perfect law of God is Jesus Christ himself in this. And that's part of the gospel. He's the only one who's ever done it. God himself incarnate, Jesus Christ came and lived a perfect life, died a death. He did not deserve rose from the dead. And those of us who place our faith and trust in him can experience his righteousness and be clothed with his righteousness and experience forgiveness of our sins, we did a whole episode on the gospel not too long ago, and so you can go back and listen to that. But we know this: we we know that we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We know that we have all made mistakes, done things wrong, and and broken the law of the Lord. We we know this, and in fact, the passage was looked at in Romans three. It says that, uh, we know that, this is 319 again, we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. The law of God, the commandments of Scripture, the, they, they show us our need for a Savior. They show us that we can't live a life good enough. Now, there is a sin issue that must be dealt with. This is actually crucial to understand if someone's going to have a proper understanding of the gospel. And so by works of the law, like nobody will be justified. In fact, that's what it said in the next verse, verse 20. Again, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Now, let me jump ahead to chapter four here. And Paul uses the example of Abraham, the Old Testament character of Abraham. And Abraham is very, very interesting. And in Romans 4, Paul is referring to an incident that took place in Genesis 15. I'm just going to read these verses out of Genesis 15 really quickly, then we'll come back to Romans 4, just so it makes a little bit more sense. Genesis 15, 1 through 6 says this. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Let me pause there. his, His name was still Abram. He's renamed Abraham later in the narrative. And he brought him outside and said, look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. And that's the end of the passage there. For those of you who are familiar with the story of Abraham, you know what's going on here. Abraham was very old and so was his wife, Sarah, and they were unable to have a child. And this is obviously before he has, uh, they have their son Isaac, the child of promise. And this is part of that promise that God is making that he will have an heir. And then he takes him outside and tells him to look up at the stars. You, you just heard all of that. But verse 6 right there is very, very important where it says, And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. Paul focuses in on that in Romans 4. And so with that, the backdrop, let's return here to Romans 4 again. And we're just going to begin in verse 20, but before reading that, I will say I am glossing over all of this big time. Like, if we just took, we could take hours just to study Romans 3, Romans 4, just kind of the the details about what's even being said here and all the points that Paul is making, but I'm just trying to get us to Romans 5 here and help us to understand a little bit of the context, because... We just need to know context. It's, it's vitally important to properly understanding the word of God. So Romans 4, 20 through 25 says, No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. Let me just pause there for a second. We're talking about Abraham here. So, okay, continuing in verse 21, it says, Fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. That's the end of the passage. There's our word again, justification. We're going to focus in on that in a moment. But what's the idea here? What's the logic? The logic is, if you go back to Genesis 15, it talks about how uh, the passage that we just read in the uh, Old Testament here Genesis 15 it says in verse 6 and he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. And so what did Abraham do? Well he believed the Lord. It was a matter of faith. It wasn't some sort of work, it wasn't some sort of like um act that merited righteousness or something like that. No, he believed God. He believed him. It says again, listen closely, and he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. And obviously, it can get a little bit confusing there with the pronouns, but what's obviously being said here is, I'll just replace the pronouns with the actual names here. And Abram believed the Lord, and the Lord counted it to Abram as righteousness. That's what's being said here. And so it was a righteousness that came not by works, but by faith. This is important, and this is what Paul is focusing in on. And that's kind of what he he turns the corner here, partway through verse 24, where he says, it will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead, Jesus, our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. And so the Paul, or the the point that Paul is making here is that we're justified by faith, not by works. We're not saved by works. We're saved by faith. In fact, this would be a great time to cite the very popular passage Uh, Ephesians 2 8 through 9 which says for by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not your own doing it is the gift of God not a result of works so that no one may boast and so it's not a result of works our salvation is not earned it is received by faith and it's the grace of God now before moving on there is something I want to point out that um, a passage that might have come in the mind of some of you guys and if not I want to highlight this anyways just to help us to understand this a little bit better a passage that at first might sound to contradict what i just said James chapter 2 James chapter 2 and let's start in verse 20 and we'll go down to 24 says do you want to be shown you foolish person that faith apart from works is useless was not abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son isaac on the altar You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. You might say, well, now, Christian, that seems to be the exact opposite of what you're saying. And so this is what we're getting into right here is actually something that a lot of people have pointed out. And we're reading from the, the letter written by James here, and people might even say, Well, when James talks about salvation and works and when Paul talks about salvation and works, they seem to they seem to be saying different things. And I would suggest to you that they're not. They're not saying different things. I I would actually suggest to you that what they are saying go together absolutely perfectly, if we understand it correctly. And so, and the reason why I'm even bringing this up right now is specifically because the example of Abraham is is used in both of these places. So let me back up in James 2 and read this in beginning in verse, let's begin in verse, we'll begin in verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? Or even the demons believe and shudder. And then I'm going to stop there. That was through verse 19. And then after that, it follows through the passage that I just read a moment ago, which was verses 20 through 24. So if you pay close attention here, what James is saying makes total sense. He says, in fact, verse 18 again, he says, But someone will say, You have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. And that's focusing in on what is being said here. This is the point. If we have true faith in God, if we are truly Jesus followers, if we have been truly born again, if we've been truly changed and made a new creation, then that's going to be evident in our life. There will be corresponding works. However, this is the thing. Those works did not lead to salvation. Those works were a result of salvation. Do you see the difference? And it makes total sense because we already looked at the passage in 2 Corinthians 5.17 that says if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. How can we say on the one hand, yeah, I I am in Christ and I am therefore a new creation, but I look exactly the same as I did before I was quote unquote a Christian or or, uh, that's just that there is zero change at all whatsoever. We talked about this in the episode, I Never Knew You, which I believe is episode number 21. I'll actually pull that up and fact check this right now so you don't have to go digging through the show notes trying to figure out what episode it actually is but the point is just that if we have been changed if we're truly a jesus follower then there should be a change in our lifestyle and yes it is episode 21 of the podcast i never knew you if you haven't listened to that one then i encourage you to listen to it and so this whole thing of um faith uh faith without works is dead it makes a lot of sense. Think about it. It's like, well, yeah, I have faith in God, but there's absolutely zero evidence to reflect that. There's no conviction over sin. There's no desire to live a holy life. There's no desire at all to obey God. There's no change. We, if somebody was in that position, they would have every reason to question whether or not they've been truly changed, if their faith is real or if they've just kind of intellectually agreed with the facts of the gospel, which is something I did for many years. I've shared this you know, part of my testimony before on this podcast from the time when I was 13 till I was 19. I was calling myself a Christian. I had prayed a prayer. I had been baptized, but I had not been changed. I had not been changed. In fact, in John 17, John 17, three, Jesus is praying to the father and he says, and this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. And that was the thing. I was doing some right stuff. I was praying every night. I had prayed some version of what is famously called the sinner's prayer. I'd been baptized. But I didn't know God. I didn't actually know him. I didn't have a relationship with him. I just didn't want to go to hell. But I did not actually have any desire to know God or to live a holy life or anything like that. Going back to Ephesians, the passage I read there where it says we are saved not by works a moment ago. I'm going to read Ephesians 2, 8, 9 again, but I'm going to follow through through verse 10 because this is important. And this is very similar to what James is saying. He says... Paul says, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Then he goes on to say in verse 10, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And so we we see that what's being talked about here is that true salvation will lead to works. And a a faith that doesn't work itself out in works, I mean what, what difference on I mean, what, what good is, what good is that? You know, it's just like, if you, that's just like maybe intellectually agreeing with something, but it doesn't reveal a changed life. And James, James is pretty, James, James is not afraid of saying hard stuff. Cause there he compares. Yeah, well, he, he says in verse 19 of chapter two, he says, you believe that God is one you do well, even the demons believe and shudder." And so he's talking about, it's like, well, yeah, even demons believe that, you know, God exists. But demons are have not surrendered their life to the Lord. They are not Jesus followers. They're not, you know, new creations in Christ. You see my point. That's that's the point I believe that James is making here. And so I could continue to talk about this, but I've already done an episode about this. So go back and listen to episode 21 if you have not already for more information on this. But I did just want to highlight that passage from James just in case that was floating around in someone's head or you came across it and wondered how this all worked together. And so the message of the Bible is that we are saved by faith, but that faith will work itself out into works. So having said all that, let's get back to Romans 5. That was all just a lot of setup. And don't worry, I'm not going (laughs) to go that in depth about everything in this episode at all. But that was all very important, crucial setup for us to even understand what is being said here in the passages that we're looking at today. Romans 5, 1 through 2, coming back to this Uh, This passage says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. So justified. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, what does justified mean? The word justified, it is the word dikai-a-o, but the word, it means to essentially be counted righteous. It means to render righteous. Um, it means to declare, pronounce one to be just, righteous, or such as he ought to be. Um, to show, exhibit one to be righteous. Uh, so it's, it's, it's this word, is connected to the word righteousness. And so this, you see how this connects to the whole thing with Abraham from the chapter before. That he believed God. And it was counted to him as righteousness. And Paul directly connects that, of course, to what he's saying here at the very end when he says in Romans 4, 24, verses uh, 23 through 25, when he says, but the words, it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead, Jesus, our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. So, It says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we've been justified by faith. That's what we were just talking about a minute ago. How is somebody counted righteous? And before I move on, remember what I said at the very beginning of this episode. This is something that happens the second that we're born again, along with those other examples and even more. Many very important things happen when we're born again. So we are justified. We are counted righteous because of Jesus. And I did another episode just on the gospel. I believe that was episode twenty-four. In um, this, again, I don't want to reteach everything that I talked about there. But by Jesus's sacrifice, we know that Jesus died and He rose from the dead, and that whoever places their faith and their trust in Him will be born again. I mean, the the most famous verse in all of Scripture actually teaches this: John three sixteen. Which, of course, says for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. John 20 verses 30 and 31 says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. We already looked at John 1, 12 through 13 at the beginning of this episode. In Romans 5, the same passage that we've been focusing on a little bit further down, it says in verses, um let's just start with verse 6 and just... Keep going down the passage. See how far we go. It says for while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly for one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Um, 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Uh, Galatians 2.16 Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. And so I'm hoping you're hearing these words, righteousness and justified, pop up in these passages because they're there. In fact, I mean, that uh, passage I just read, justified appeared three times, I think, Galatians 2.16. And so there are Plenty of more passages that we could read as well, just to see this very thing that we're talking about. This example of how we are justified. We're made righteous by faith in Jesus. We are made righteous by our faith in Jesus. We are, we experience forgiveness in his name. And so the opposite of righteousness or justification is going to be guilt and condemnation. So Romans eight, one says there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so it's, it's, Think about it in legal terms. It's you're standing before a judge. You're in a courtroom setting and you've been justified. You're declared righteous. There's not guilt or condemnation. Those who are in Christ Jesus, that's what it's saying. Our guilt is gone. The condemnation is gone. The stain of sin, it's gone. It's wiped away. Jesus has taken care of that. He took care of that by his blood, by his death, his burial, his resurrection, we're clean. Hallelujah. I mean really that's that if we could just grasp this truth enough, but before we move through the passage, just a couple more quick thoughts about um, justification here. Justification is about it's about like I said, the removal of our guilt and the bestowal of Jesus' righteousness, um, how we are free from guilt. But something I want to talk about regarding justification is that justification is an event. It's not a process. It is the one-time act of God declaring us not guilty. This is what we need to understand. It is an event. It happens the moment that we are born again. In fact, notice how the verse is written here. It's um, so in Romans 5, one. It says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, it doesn't say since we are being justified by faith. It says since we have been justified by faith, this points to a past tense reality, a past tense reality. We have been justified by faith. It is something that happened in an instant. The moment we were born again, you were justified by faith. This is so important for us to understand. It's done. Your right standing with God is settled the second you become a christian you are you're not an object of his wrath you're an object of his grace and regarding um he says since we've been justified by faith one one final note about faith wayne grudem who's who's a bible teacher uh, has a good quote about this. He says, faith is not just belief in facts, but personal trust in Jesus. And this kind of goes back to what we were talking about earlier as a part, as with regard to saving faith and even some of the stuff in, in James chapter two. And so uh, I just wanted to really, it, it's crucial for us to understand um, that it is a settled event, that it was an event. It's not a process. You were justified. You are now justified. Guiltless and clean, if you're in Christ, and I can keep talking about this, but you get the point now. So, moving on, returning to the passage here. The passage says, "Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ." Now, the word "peace" is irene, irene. It's where the name Irene comes from, and it uh, simply and it has quite a few potential definitions, of course, depending on the context. But just a a simple way of understanding this is it's peace between individuals, it's harmony. It is, there is nothing, and it says here, this passage, it says, we have peace with God. There's nothing between us and God anymore. What separated us has been removed. It's been taken care of by the blood of Jesus, by what he did on the cross. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, it says. And so the cool thing about um, Irene, the word... Uh, quite possibly comes from another Greek word like uh, uh, um, aero and aero means to bind together, which is a really cool image. If you think about it, it's like, okay, if things are at peace, it's like they're bound together. There's no, there's not friction. There's not separation. They're not distance. They're bound together. And so, but the idea is there's peace here. There's peace between individuals. There's harmony. We understand what peace means. And so it says peace with God. Now something that I'd like to point out is there is a Difference between, um, the peace of God and peace with God. And I'll go ahead and say, I mean, I, I don't like it when, you know, you hear somebody trying to make a point, but there's like no actual difference. It's called make a distinction without a difference where it's like, okay, yeah, that doesn't actually change anything. But this is an example where this is actually really significant. And so right here in this passage, we talk about, um, we obtained, let's see here. Uh, sorry, I just lost my place here. We have peace with God. So in uh, Romans, not Romans, in Philippians chapter 4, actually we talked about this passage in the last episode. It says in verses six and seven, it says, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And so you say, okay, well, what is the difference of the, of peace with God and um, the peace of God? Well, it actually makes quite a bit of sense. Peace with God is just an objective reality about our relationship with him. Regardless of how we feel, Emotionally or subjectively, we have peace with God because of Christ Jesus. It says we have peace with God through Christ Jesus, our Lord, uh, or through our Lord Christ, Jesus Christ is what it says in the passage. And so the point is just that justification and peace with God do not describe emotional experiences necessarily. They, they they can absolutely be connected to emotions. Emotions can flow from that. And if we meditate on these realities, then there will be certain emotions that we will feel But us being justified is not a matter of how I feel subjectively. Day by day, being at peace with God is not a matter of how I feel subjectively. Because it's an objective reality that was settled by Jesus Christ and his sacrifice. And so I hope this is making sense. The peace of God is that subjective sense of peace that we feel. The peace of God will guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. We understand that. It's just, it is a felt experience. However, peace with God, regardless of whether or not we feel it, it's there. We have peace with God. That is settled. There is nothing separating us from God because of what Jesus did. We have been justified. That's settled. These are objective realities. Why this is so meaningful to me is because sometimes, and the Lord is helping me with this, sometimes I feel like I should just be further along than I am. I, you know... I shared in last time's episode, I find myself still struggling with anxieties and fears and all sorts of stuff like that. Um, I find myself sometimes feeling like, man, the Lord's probably disappointed in me, expecting me to be further along. Um, Just things like that, if I'm being honest. There are those sorts of feelings that come along, and and you can probably relate to it, where it's just, just, you just think, well, you know, I... I, I imagine that I would be further along at this point and we could be tempted to feel like the Lord is disappointed in us for not being further along. And what's so important for us to remember is that we have objective peace with God because of what Jesus Christ has done. So if you think the Lord is disappointed in you, if you think the Lord is frustrated with you, if you think the Lord is angry with you or upset with you, um, then just remember this truth. You have peace with God through your Lord Jesus Christ. He has removed what stood between you and the Father. He is taking care of the sin problem. You have peace with God. And so when you're in places of feeling down like that or feeling like you should be further along, instead of running away from God because you're afraid of his you know, frustration, anger, something like that, it empowers you to run to God because you have peace with him. And you can run to your father and you can say, Lord, please help. And it's a completely different thing. And it's all based on what Jesus did. We have peace with God. And honestly, talking about the peace of God, we will probably have a greater sense of the peace of God if we meditated on the reality that we have peace with God and that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And, you know, one other thing here. It says we've been justified by God um, mm-hmm. It says, it says uh, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Obviously, God is the one doing the justification there. He's the one counting us righteous. In Romans chapter 8, it says, um, beginning in verse 31 through verse 34, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies who is to condemn. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. And that's the end of the passage. And it continues to talk about the love of Christ. And it's a beautiful passage, the rest of Romans 8. But the point is this, it's like he says... He said, uh, it is God who justifies who is to condemn. God is the highest authority. And so if God has declared us righteous, there is no one that can challenge that. And the enemy will try to. He will try to heap guilt and condemnation, all that stuff. In the beginning of that same chapter, Romans 8, chapter 1, we've already read it, but it says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So the answer for the uh, you know, guilt and condemnation and attacks of the enemy, the answer is the cross. It's the blood of Jesus. It's the fact that you were made righteous in him and God has declared you righteous. And then, and then there's nothing that can change that. And so that's just very important for us to understand. Now, let me say, cause some people could take what I'm saying right now and be like, yeah, I'm righteous. I don't ever make any mistakes ever. And nobody has any right to ever hold me accountable to anything. Nope. That's ridiculous. I mean, the same Bible that says all of this talks about, um, for example, in Galatians chapter six verse one, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourselves, on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. As Galatians six one and two, and so the Bible has plenty of passages that talk about how we're you know supposed to hold each other accountable and help one another. And there's even passages like in Hebrews 12, which I've talked about in other parts in this podcast, that talk about how the Lord will discipline us. He will discipline us. Um, so I, all this is sim- simply to say that um, this teaching that we are righteous before God doesn't mean that all of our behavior is perfect. And it doesn't mean that we won't need to be disciplined for our behavior. It doesn't mean that we won't sin. But here's something important to realize. In fact, I'll just... um. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live for they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness for the moment. All discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. And we could keep going. My point is this notice. So yes, we will, our, our behaviors need to be shifted and the Lord will discipline us. But notice this, that his discipline flows out of the fact that he's our father and that he loves us. It explicitly says, if you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. That's verse 8 of Hebrews 12. But it also says in, um, you in, verse, in the second part of verse 5, or I'm sorry, verse 6 here, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. And so what's important for us to realize is the distinction is this in Christ Jesus, you are righteous. That's a matter of identity. That's a matter of who you are. The discipline of the Lord is a matter of what we do. In Christ Jesus, you are righteous. You are righteous. But sometimes we may not act like it. In fact, I feel like I could just sum up this teaching of you're righteous. You're righteous. Now act like it. And so the Lord will certainly discipline us because he loves us far too much to let us continue in sin. He, um, But my point is just we're talking about a matter of identity, not just a matter of behavior. And that's an important thing for us to keep separated. Otherwise, whenever the Lord does discipline us, we'll feel like he's angry at us or that he's like disowning us or removing himself from us. No, he's actually loving us and drawing in close and helping us. Very important for us to understand. And so... What I'm saying is just that um, this is very important for us to understand. We're talking about something, uh, a matter of identity, not just behavior. So coming back to Romans 5, it says, um, Through him we have also obtained access. This is verse 2 now. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of glory. Um, We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. So in this passage... It says, through him, obviously talking about Jesus, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And one of the scriptures that immediately comes to mind when we hear that word access um, would be Hebrews 4.16, which says, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help uh, in time of need. And so because of Jesus, we can approach the throne of God with boldness. We can draw near to God and find mercy and grace. And we can do this confidently because of Jesus. Um, Hebrews 10, 19 through 20 says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, through Uh, That is through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. And so we see that it is the blood of Jesus that allows us to enter the holy places, which this is, of course, using tabernacle temple imagery here in this Hebrews 10 passage. And so we're talking about entering into the presence of God. And so because of the blood of Jesus, we can inf- enter with confidence into the presence of God, not with arrogance, that's not what this means, but with confidence. Confidence in what? Ourselves? Absolutely not. Confidence in Jesus Christ and in the value and sufficiency of his sacrifice and his blood. It's confidence in that, knowing that the Father, um, the Father is, is now in Christ pleased with us. There's nothing separating. Again, we have peace with God. It says we have access. Um, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And so our relationship with God is a relationship of grace. His grace is poured out on us. And now grace, it's a um, It's a very rich word. And we're not going to do a full study of the, the word here. But the word is charis. And again, depending on the context, it could you know have kind of a few different nuances, but it could mean goodwill, loving kindness, um, favor, but we could really just think of it as God's positive disposition towards us. And notice the, the verb tense here. It says, um, into this grace in which we stand, stand, present tense. We stand in the present tense grace of God on our lives his loving kindness, his favor on our lives. And this is because of Jesus Christ. And again, remember, we need to keep this in the context of the whole Bible. This doesn't mean that the Lord doesn't discipline us. This doesn't mean that um, he doesn't work in our lives to make us practically holy. He absolutely does. That process is called sanctification, the lifelong process by which we are made to look more and more like Jesus, where you know we are positionally righteous before God, but practically... Sometimes we don't necessarily behave righteous, but that, again, is the distinction between identity and behavior. Our identity is that we are righteous in Christ Jesus. Our behavior sometimes doesn't necessarily line up with our identity, but the Lord helps us with that. But I just need us to understand here that his disposition towards us is positive, It's grace in Christ Jesus. We are sons and daughters of God, and God is the perfect father. And then the verse, uh, the passage finishes out and it says, and we rejoice in the, uh, I'm sorry, let me start over. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. That's the last part of Romans 5.2. That points ahead to a future reality. We rejoice in hope. Hope in the Bible is, um, it's not like the English word hope. Hope in English implies doubt. Like, oh, I hope this happens. Not so in the Bible. In the Bible, hope implies a future certainty it's almost like strength in the present because of a future reality it has expectancy to it and so we rejoice in hope of the glory of god and so that phrase let me just read a quote real quick about um, that let's see here the glory of god um here we go it says this phrase is an old testament idiom for the personal presence of god this referred to the believer standing before god in the faith righteousness provided by jesus on resurrection day it is often called by a by the theological term glorification believers will share the likeness of jesus and there's a lot of verses they included in that so this points ahead to the future the the and glorification is another one of those big um, bible words that maybe we'll talk about in another episode but this pointing into the future day we'll be in the presence of god but the day uh you know um um you know, when we will see him face to face, the glory of God. And so it's interesting in this passage here that uh, in Romans 5, we have past, present, and future. We, we have been justified because of that past tense reality fact. We now stand present tense, or we, we now have present tense peace with God. And we stand in his grace and we rejoice in the future hope, in the hope of the glory of God. Because of Jesus because of Jesus, we have been justified. Our sins have been taken care of. We are righteous in the eyes of the Father. Because of Jesus, we have peace with God. Because of Jesus, we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And because of Jesus, we rejoice in the hope of glory of God. We know that we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. We know that um, when we stand before the Lord, the blood of Jesus is going to be enough. It's enough. And... That's this passage is just so rich and important for us to understand. Well, I just need us to know. I need all of us to understand as best we can that if you're in Christ, you have been justified. The Lord loves you. You are righteous in Christ Jesus. And so that even if he corre- even when he corrects you, even when he disciplines you, that is based out of love, not anger, not frustration, not disappointment, and so this is, this is important for us to understand. And, you know, I will actually just go ahead and include um, just a second here, 2 Corinthians 5, 9. One time when I was talking about this subject, somebody asked me about, uh, it might have been this specific passage, but this kind of idea. In Second Corinthians 5, 9, where Paul says, so whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. And so the question is, well, you know, if God is already pleased with us because we're in Christ and we're already the objects of his grace and his favor, then why would Paul say something along those lines? Why would he say that? Well, I mean, this goes right back to the whole, I think, behavior and identity sort of thing, where it's like, okay, yeah, in Christ Jesus we are holy and righteous. We still need to be diligent to live in a way that corresponds with his will and his ways. We want to live in a way that's good and righteous and holy. We want to live in a way that lines up with our identity in Christ, and so we should make it our aim to please him, um, in our, you know, behavior and our attitudes and everything. Uh Psalm nineteen it says Last verse of Psalm 19, verse 14 says, Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. It's kind of like that idea where it's like, yeah, I want the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart to be acceptable in the Lord's sight. But I know that I'm not maintaining his love. I'm not maintaining his favor. I'm not maintaining his grace. I'm not maintaining all of this stuff. No, the blood of Jesus took care of all of that. This is a function of loving God. And this is a function of I want to live in a way that pleases him and lines up with who I am. Our obedience to God is a function not of earning righteousness as a function of love. Jesus said in four, um, John fourteen fifteen, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. So keeping God's commandments are not a function of earning righteousness or even earning his favor or his love or that sort of stuff. It's just a function of love for the Lord. If we love him, then we will want to obey him. And so I hope that this has been encouraging to you. I hope that it's been helpful, uh, even if it's just a helpful reminder But you probably know somebody who needs to hear this that is like, no, in Christ, God is pleased with you. He is. And you can rest in that. You can rest in the reality that there's nothing between you and God, which means that you can always go to him for help, even if you got yourself into the position in the first place. But as always, I hope this is encouraging to you guys. And I hope that you guys are all doing well. God bless you.